right, we are back in 1 Corinthians again. And uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is where we pick up. And some of the, some of the uh, instances that we're going to talk about today, um, there's a lot of them that are debatable. Uh, or let's put it this way. There's a lot of them that are debated. Um, and there's some of them that are debatable. And, um, and then we're going to uh, see if we can get a bit into 1 Corinthians 13 as well, because that would, I think, be helpful. Um, because that's one of the uh, that's one of those chapters that's almost always taken out of context, and so we're going to do our best not to do that. I know the other half of our class is running about thirty minutes late this morning uh, due to some sicknesses in the house, so um, you know what? That's okay. Oh, um, uh, yeah, the only one sick that it's a, that it's gonna, that's going to affect is going to be Sophie. She, she should be better. She'll be fine. I'll stick her on the plane regardless. I just, <laughs> you're not missing that. <laughs> You'll go barfing. Uh, <laughs> say again? On Thursday, um, uh, my wife and I and our two eldest girls are going to Rome for a week. Yep. Yeah, we wanted to, uh, we wanted to show them that. Kind of an extension of studying history and being fascinated with culture. So, you, you don't want to walk around Rome with me. <laughs> It'll just be nonstop. Oh, oh, check this out. Do you know what's happened here? I had a thought. I have seen somewhere that Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, yeah, lots. Um, yeah, our church history class is kind of bizarrely grown. Uh, it's very weird. I've never had one do it like this. Um, it's a, it's averaging over a thousand people a week now, and uh, fifty nine countries. So, and yeah, we can see the stats on all of it. Obviously, the lion's share of it is English speaking countries because it's in English. Um, but no, I actually there's a guy who's translating all of them into Portuguese. Um, and he was like, my people in Portugal, he says, we, we don't know hardly any of this history. He says, so I asked your permission to do that. I said, as long as you give attribution to where it came from. He says, great, no problem. Off you go. <laughs> so, so, uh, he started back at the beginning and he's translating them all the way forward. So I think we're what, 80 episodes in, something like that. So what do you mean, Sam? No, so what he's doing is he's transcripting the whole thing, translating it, and then actually teaching it um, straightforward like that, so, which will open it into Brazil and all sorts of other places. So church history, people, people are kind of starved for church history, and there's, that, that's kind of a, a bizarre thing. But no, I, I get messages. I got one last night. I just get random messages either on LinkedIn or Twitter or email or even texting sometimes people find out my phone number and just ask questions about church history. Like people have no idea who they are. Uh, a guy asked me last night, he was just like, oh yeah, I was just listening to that thing about uh, Book of Common Prayer. Which edition would you recommend if I'm really interested in it? I was like, <laughs> I'm literally sitting at Taco Bell and I'm like, second edition was actually the most important, so have fun. He's like, thanks. I was like, I don't even know who this guy is. It's, it's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> there yeah because you you're you're reading at the same time you're talking 
and yeah. so you slow down. Yeah, <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it, it says to me, somebody is sending a message at this point, and then you might say, oh, yeah, that's, you know, go on, and you say, oh, yeah, that's right, and, <laughs> and, and it doesn't go right with the words that you said yeah. before, and I know. You're looking at something and, and... Yeah, it's kind of hard to remember that it's not only the live thing, uh, the viewable thing, but no, then also the recorded right. thing, but... To me, it means that other people are really... Engaged, engaged. yeah. It's right. good. So, yeah. All right, so let's go back to this. First Corinthians 12. Um, so the, the continual lesson on the... the the person of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. Here we come to 1 Corinthians 12 and see one of the roles he plays in the church. Uh, we talked a lot about the reality of spiritual gifts last week, and, um, and we covered chapter 3, 6, and then started into 12, and just covered this kind of overarching idea. The, the concept uh, of the gifts to the church is never meant to be self-serving. If you have a spiritual gift that is... Um, in any way causing you pride. Either you do not have the spiritual gift, or you do, and you are misusing it. Right? Because the Spirit of God is never about the focus on self. The Spirit of God is always about the focus on Christ. Always. 100%. Uh, it is why he is in the world. It is why there is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is why that temple, through the sacrifice of Christ, gives glory to God Almighty. All of that is to say, when we are defined collectively, as the temple of God, every part of the temple points to what the temple points to. Every piece of the temple. Whether we are in, and he mixes up the metaphors on purpose here, whether we're a piece of the temple or whether we're a piece of the body, or the hand, the foot, the eye, don't look at one another and think, well, you know, uh, they should all be like me. You know, I'm the eye. I'm the best. And he's like, what? If everything's the eye, where would be the hands? Where, if everything was the nose, where would be the seeing? Like, there is, there is purpose behind our differences. There is purpose behind the differentiation in our gifts. And there is a similar goal between all of them, and that is found in verse 7. Why is each given a manifestation of the Spirit? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. All of these varieties of activities, varieties of services, varieties of gifts. Why is each given the manifestation of the Spirit? Verse 7. For the common good. It is not for yours. It is not for you and yours. It is for the whole church. And we should serve one another lovingly. We should serve one another in ways that cost us. Uh, I remember it was uh, David who wrote this, uh, and I wrote it in the front of my Bible back 15 years ago or so. Um, and it's, it, was a great, it was a great thing to remember, and it reminded me all the time, I will not give the Lord that which costs me nothing. Who determines what is the common good? Right. So that's, that's a great question. Who determines what is the common good? Let's spitball it. If, if the purpose is, or if the path is determined by the Spirit of God, then who determines the goal? Would it also be that it serves other people? It will, absolutely. That will be part of the path to it. Morning, Ralph. First Corinthians 12, we're currently in verse 7. 
1 Corinthians 12. We're currently in verse 7. So if the Spirit of God is determining the path that we take, and in, even, even to the microscopic level of which Christian gets which gift for which purpose, then who would you imagine determines the goal of all of those? God. God, it's not us. If, if we drive the gift, and then we have the destination in mind, and we can plan those things, first of all, I don't really want the power to direct the history of Christianity. Um, the common good is determined by God's purposes. The common good is decided by what God is putting that there for. For instance, let's just look at a classic example, Day of Pentecost. Right? We go back to that. Who was asking for the gift to be able to speak in other languages? Did anyone ask for that? No. No. Did anyone sit down and say, hey, I got an idea. Since today, later on today, all 120 of us are going to be able to speak and people, Parthians, Medes, whoever, are going to be able to hear us in their own natural tongue. Let's all sit down and make sure we're all saying the same sermon. Anyone do that? No. Yet what happened? It happened. Did any of them go, well, let's see, there's a group of thousands and thousands here. What would save the most people? What would appeal to them the best? No. God, in his wisdom, ensured that this happened at a time when travelers that were Jewish were in town from all over the world, and 3,000 of them became Christians that first day, right? Who aimed for that? Who aimed for that good? God did. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... it's relatively easy to see it looking back in time, but, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times we don't know what, it, it's hard to discern what the common good is. I mean, I think your church is facing a situation with a building, right? Is it for the common good to sell it or to keep it? I mean, what's the, there, there, I mean, it's hard to know, like, what God's purpose is at all. I mean, we, we all try to discern that, but we all might interpret things <laughs> differently and might, of course, and, and might, you know, think that this is for the common good, where somebody else thinks that's for the common good, then they could be diametrically opposed. So sure. How do you... You mean in, in practical things like this, or in the spiritual life of the church, which is what First Corinthians 12 I mean, is about? I mean, I think spiritual life of the church is practical at times, too, isn't it? Sure. I mean, I think there's practical aspects of what we do to minister... Mm -hmm. others, right? And so sometimes we disagree on what we think is the common good. And so there are fail-safes inside on the practical side. Uh, that's what those who are held accountable are in the church for. Okay, so the leadership, is the leadership They're the ones that are held responsible, so absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so, if, so if those are the ones... So, so this is not... This is not the practical ramifications of this come in chapter 14. In chapter 12, he's introducing us to this concept that the Spirit of God, what was, what was happening so hugely in, in Corinth was everyone was just doing whatever they wanted to, to the glorification of self. And, and what Paul is saying is, look, that's not why we have the Spirit of God. If we're doing it in a self-serving motive, we, we have problems. That, that, that's, and that, that's true regardless of leadership or not. Uh, that is a universal across the board. And so that does have practical effects. But the practical effects of this, uh, the main focus of it will be on the community uh, as it gathers together. And we'll see that in chapter 14. Uh, and it's why chapter 13 is there to establish if we have all of these gifts and the right direction and the right discernment and all this kind of stuff, we got everything lined up and everything's just right, but we don't have love. 
worthless, all of it. That's what chapter 13 is all about. And so leadership must do so in deference, but people also must follow deference, and there must be the Spirit of God giving his gifts where he desires, regardless. So none of these gifts should be controlled by any leadership in the church. Now, I think that's one of the important aspects of, of differentiating between the spiritual and the practical, because while the spiritual affects the practical, the leadership of the church, like for instance, let's look at deacons. They were given to the ministration of the services of the church, especially when it came to widows, orphans, uh, and even waiting tables, for instance. Um, it, was, it was to ensure that the practical function of the church carried on. Um, same with the, the preaching of the word with regards to the elders and the apostles. That also has a practical side effect, but more of a spiritual side effect to it. Um, here, Paul is addressing absolutely everyone, leader, elder, everyone, and saying, this is not up to the, even as an apostle, he's saying, this is not up to me who gets the gift of tongues. It's not up to me who gets the gift of, of this or administration or helps or a word of wisdom or any of these things. This is not up to us. Um, we don't direct that. Even as leaders of the church, we don't direct that. That's where that gets into problematic areas. But on the practical side of it, on the other side of it, when we come together, for instance, we'll see in chapter 14, if we have conflicting gifts, two people have the gift of prophecy, and they're both trying to speak at the same time over one another, both gifts are worthless now. Then that's why he says both should take their turn. And, and he gives very stark warnings to, if you're not doing that, one, none of you are bearing your gifts in any meaningful sense. He actually gives entire groups of people the instruction to, because of where they are at, to sit down and shut up. Even if you have a spiritual gift of speaking in other languages. He says the fellowship of the church is more important even than that. So the common good is directed by the Spirit of God, but the practical effects of that, the management of it, and the enforcement of that is on the leadership of the church, 100%. Um, regardless of things. And yeah, we'll make bad calls too. <laughs> Welcome to life. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, yeah, that's okay. I don't want to belabor the point. Verse 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. What's his emphasis? Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the focus of all of this is not the person bearing the gift. If it's the person bearing the gift, and that's their focus, and that's the focus of the church going, this person has this marvelous gift, whether that be preaching, whether that be administration, whatever that may be. That focus should never be on that person. And if it is, it's wrong. The focus needs to be on Christ, the work of the Spirit, and the glory of God. And if it becomes something else, then it loses almost its definition of a functioning church. We're going to see in chapter 14 what was going on here that Paul is addressing because he's saying, look, and and this is why he's laying this foundation work. It's not about this gift or that gift or that gift. What's his emphasis through this? It's the one in the same spirit, one in the same spirit, the same spirit all the way through, which in, in other words, if there's conflict between gifts, that's not because you have different spirits. That's because you have sin 
and a desire to carry the gift in a self-focused manner. And it's why he's going to spend an entire chapter on how to serve one another in chapter 13. Because he's going to say, if this conflict arises, then there's problems somewhere because it's not that the Holy Spirit gives conflicting gifts to you or to you or to you or to me. It's that the Spirit of God orchestrates this and we bear it fallibly. How many of you have borne your spiritual gifts perfectly? If you raise your hand, you lose. <laughs> that's, that's the real test, isn't it? So I, I want to say this because when we come to a list like this, it's very easy to kind of get into the, you know, let's systematize this. Let's lay out all the spiritual gifts and everything. This is not an exhaustive list. That's not even his point. Uh, we know it's not an exhaustive gift uh, list because we have other gift lists that includes gifts that are different than this. He is giving uh, examples of the gifts that were going on in Corinth. Some of these we don't really understand what was going on. Some of them we do. But the point is one and the same. The spiritual gifts that are given for the common good, wherever that goes and however that goes, are given by the same Spirit. One Spirit that empowers the church. We are one temple. And this is one of the reasons why I resist this uh, attempt to define each Christian's body as a temple, because that's not even how 1 Corinthians 6 is to be translated. All of those are in the plural. Y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's referring to the church and saying what is done in the body individually affects the body corporately. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit when gathered together as Christians. But if we see it as, Anne, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and Ralph, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, and Tim, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, how quick before conflict arises? I'm all for individualism, especially when it comes to responsibility first. But there is an aspect to the church that is unified because it is one temple. Even when we gather together, we are not the whole church. We are a, a reflection of part of the church. But we can be spoken of as the whole church, which is kind of remarkable uh, and, a, and an awesome gift. But still, as the temple of the Holy Spirit, we work together by the administration of the same in one spirit. Watch this list. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge. Much has been made about these two gifts um, where I've, I've had people come up and say, uh, you know, God gave me a, a word of knowledge and I'm here to uh, dispel it to you. Uh, God wants you to do this. Now, I don't have any problem if, if that is consistent with Scripture and it can back up scripture and all this kind of stuff, no problem. I don't have any issue with that. But when it comes to something like, um, I'll give you one that actually did happen. Um, and not in so many words, God told me to tell you that you need to come to our church. What do I do with that? What do you, oh, let me turn it around. What do you do with that? Really? What do you do with that? And they said they have the, the gift of a word of knowledge and a word of wisdom and put that on me and told me if I didn't come to their church, I would be sinning. Because it was a spiritual gift of God. And if God truly said that, they would be absolutely right. If God had revealed that and said that, I would have been wrong in denying it. So what's your response to that? 
They said they don't know. God works with them that way. I actually asked that. Dream. Three days ago. Do you like the unfalsifiable nature of it? Well, I think you have to interpret. I mean, you have to, it goes back to what I was saying about how you know what common good is. Like, mm-hmm. You have to use your knowledge of, of Scripture, your understanding of God, to ask questions uh, about that. And right. Try to make discernment. Would you just say, I'm going to pray out? Well, I mean, that, that is the kind Christian way to say no. Huh. <laughs> I grew up in the South. Literally, that's the way we say no. I'm going to pray on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yes, Ralph? Well, you, you mentioned that God told you to come to your church. Mm-hmm. It's not your church. Yeah. And announcing it was their gift to tell you. Self-serving, a little bit. And also, conflicting with Scripture. I was already in fellowship with the church, which just simply removing my fellowship from that church to follow somebody whose unverifiable dream I have to somehow live by places their dream on par with Scripture. When it's in conflict with Scripture, where I am currently engaged in a church. And here I'll quote the Puritan John Owen. If your dream and your visions conflict with Scripture, they are wrong. And if they match up with Scripture, they are irrelevant. Now, I won't go so far as to that on the second point. But I will say, in conflict, um, I'm going to go with Scripture. And if I'm wrong on that, I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, I, don't, I don't see anywhere where this happens. And here's the real fun part. The whole concept that God comes to me and, and gives me this, this word of knowledge regarding the future is based on a single word here. And it literally means the exact same thing as it means in English, a word of knowledge. Can you define what it means from that phrase? There's no deeper words here. It's not very complex. Here, Greek and English line up almost exactly. What is it? If I come up to you and say there's a gift in the church called a word of knowledge in reference to the church in Corinth, do you know what it is? Neither do I. There is no further definition. No clarity is given. More importantly... If that's supposed to be an ongoing way in which the church interacts, there is going to be instruction somewhere and boundaries. Right? Right? Same thing for crusades. If the church bears the sword and we have the ability to go out and slay infidels, you would think if that was given to the church, there would be instructions, boundaries, parameters, and examples that are bad so that we cannot follow them. The problem is, is we don't have anything like that that tells us anything more than literally the phrase that means word of knowledge. We do not know what that means. Anyone who tells you they know exactly what it means is reading a whole lot into two words. The problem is, is we don't have it defined, but we do have how Paul is talking to this church to express to us. We do have the goal of every spiritual gift we know is going to be the glory of God, not self. We do know it's given by the Holy Spirit. So what do we know about the Holy Spirit? We have been discussing the Holy Spirit since Genesis 1 verse 2. What is he always fascinated by? What is he always bending everything towards? Life. It will always be towards Christ. Always. And if it, if it ever becomes about self, I can promise you that did not come from the Spirit of God. I can promise you that. 
Good morning, all. Sure. It is not. God is God keeps us and directs us to certain things. So to that extent, he's telling us what to do with ourselves. Right. But not for ourselves. No, not for ourselves. That's where that's what we're talking about. It's not it, the, the spiritual gift is not given to us for us. It's given to us for the common good. It's given to us for the service of other Christians. With, without exception. Even, even a gift of faith, for instance, is not given so that you can rely on Christ all the more. The gift of faith is um, a, a further than even salvation and the, normal, the normative relationship of a Christian to God. The gift of faith would be a whole nother layer on that, which I would imagine has much more to do with no matter what circumstance, this person in the church is constantly reminding Christians around them to trust in God no matter how bleak it all gets. That gift is not given to them for them. That gift is given to them for the church. So it is for, because all we can control is ourselves. So we, he gave us a gift to guide us in how we're supposed to act. And to say it's not for yourself, yes, it is for yourself. It's your, he's telling us what we individually need to do. And it's for our own actions. We're responsible for our own actions. And we have been given guidance as to what those actions should be. We don't listen to them most of the time, but that... that Where is the guidance? Holy Spirit. And where did the Spirit of God speak clearly? Scripture. The Holy Spirit is the inspirer of Scripture to that end, right? Uh, the discernment of spirits and exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying is not a matter of discerning whispers inside our soul. What the Scriptures say is what the Holy Spirit says. That is what he has spoken. What he gifts to the church is given to us in parameters in Scripture of how these things work in the midst of other believers. And the, the fail-safe on this is to see if the goal of the gift is to service of self, first, foremost, and ending, we are holding it wrong. I mean, the entirety of chapter 14 is all about this. Because, because he, he establishes that these gifts, remarkable though they are, like for instance, we'll, we'll use Paul as an example, right? He had a remarkable gift. He wrote half the New Testament. And he said, specifically, God gave him, and we don't know what this was, a thorn in the flesh to ensure his humility because of the, excuse me, because of the severity of the revelations. Because otherwise, he would become prideful without end. And so God specifically gave him suffering, not just instructions not to be proud. He actually gave him whatever it is, sufferings. And Paul says, I asked three times for it to be removed. The subtext is, I really hated this. Whatever it was, but God says, no, my grace is sufficient to you. It's, that's it. It is not about alleviation of suffering. It's not about just giving you the right instructions. It's about ensuring that you do not hold whatever I give to you with pride. And to ensure that humility, suffering is usually the way that it's called in. And even if it comes at the hands of other Christians. Right, so 
Here, here he gives other examples, right? Gifts of healing. That one obviously is not about you, right? It's not, it's nowhere do we ever see any prophet anywhere or apostle healing themselves. Ever notice that? Ever. Not once. It is always somebody else. We even have servants of apostles that have physical and medical maladies that the apostles are not allowed to heal. We have that. Timothy. Paul gives him medical advice saying, but people had been healed near Paul before. Like, he knew Peter. Peter was able to walk past somebody and his shadow could... People were healed by a handkerchief in Ephesus that Paul had had brush upon his skin. It was carried off to heal people. But he has to tell Timothy how to take medicine. Right? How much are we not in charge of exactly what the Spirit of God is doing and when he's doing it uh, is a matter of great humility. And I think, I think one of those, those aspects of how, how the Scripture continually reminds us that no matter where we are in the Christian life, if it's become a focus on self only, we've lost the whole purpose. We've lost the purpose. Why would a gift of healing be about the self? Why would a working of miracles be about the self? Right? Jesus did not walk across the water because he didn't want to walk around the lake. It wasn't to alleviate his tiredness. Right? He was not healing Lazarus so that he could show off, for instance. He was portraying the gospel. This is how severe a transfer must take place. He said the same thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. What did he say? Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Your first birth is not enough. Right? So he's, he's portraying the gospel in his works. It's not just about doing tricks. That's what everyone wanted him to do. Give us a new sign. Give us a new wonder. Give us a new trick, and then we'll believe in you. And he's like, I don't want that kind of believer. I won't do any more signs and wonders around you, and now I'm going to leave town. Right? Because, and, and the same that Christ had this for, the same for the apostles, the same for the church. We do not bear these things for ourselves. We bear them for the common good. And his main purpose here is to show, in verse 11, all of these gifts, all of these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Not only is salvation not primarily about us, neither is sanctification. Neither is spiritual gifts. All of it is focused on the purposes of God as he desires to bring about what he is aiming at. He, um, he illustrates that here in verse 12. He gives us a picture. Just as the body, and here he's just referring to a normal body, human body, is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. By extension, so it is with the church. And so he applies it straight to the church. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether you were Jews or Greeks, whether you were slaves or whether you were free, all are made to drink of one spirit. Again, his focus is on this reality that one spirit is the source of all of this. One spirit is the source of all of this life. The body does not consist of one member, but of many and here he's going to teach us something real important about the church. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 16, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, again, who's directing all this? God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? You just have a pile of ears. That's a really interesting that's a really interesting word picture. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And here his emphasis comes back again. Just because we're different doesn't make us not members of a single body. Just because we have different gifts does not make us members of different bodies. We have differenting gifts. That is okay. That is not a bug. That is a feature. Ralph, I'll put you on the spot. Ralph has different scruples and rules in his life than I do. That's not a bug of the church. That is a feature of the church to keep us humble. Both of us. In service to one another. We are not here trying to make everyone the same. We are not unity through uniformity. We are unity through humility. We live with one another. We live next to one another. We engage with one another. We have different worship desires. We have different tempos we like. We have different sermon styles we like. We have different food we like. Everything. That's great. God made all things to be received with gratitude. But the second we lose sight of the fact that the differences inside the body are a feature, not a bug, all of a sudden it becomes about us. Again, because what were we going to do? We're going to go out and say, this is wrong because it's not what I would do. This is wrong because it doesn't look like me. And what Paul is doing is saying it is built into the church to have different gifts. You say, well, that's not very efficient. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be really great if every single person in the church had every single spiritual gift? Everyone could heal everyone else. Faith would be erupting out of every corner of the church. Knowledge and wisdom everywhere. Miracles, utterances of wisdom, utterances of knowledge. My goodness, it's almost like you wouldn't need one another. And that's his point. You wouldn't need one another then. You wouldn't need the church. But the eye needs the hand. The ear needs the foot. The foot needs the ear. The hand needs the eye. The body needs the head, which is Christ. His picture doesn't leave anything open to another option. He's saying none of this is second best, and I guess this works. No, this is plan A. This is how the church is to work. This is how the church exists. And you say, why is it that the spirit of doing this, not only just for the common good, meaning where the local church goes, the common good is as large as it gets. Not just the local church, not just the national level of the church, not just the worldwide church, but the worldwide church through all time and space. The eternal, singular church of God. All of these things, you, you hear that um, phrasing of it in Romans 8, 28, right? All things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purposes, right? How many times has that been quoted to you 
in reference to bad circumstances. Your stocks went down, somebody passed away. Go read that chapter. It's all about the Spirit of God. And it is all about the eternal salvation that will surely be ours no matter what thorny ways it walks through. It is not about, don't worry, Christian, if your stocks go down, God will ensure they go up again. No. That only works during times of prosperity. Try preaching that to Christians who are in the famines. It is that no matter what you pass through, the ultimate common good will out. God will save his people. He will restore his creation. And this creation, which is currently groaning alongside of us, will finally meet its consummation. And the new heavens and the new earth will certainly come. And that's why he finishes off that great chapter by saying, it is God who justifies who is left to condemn. And like there's, there's absolutely nothing that can undo what he is doing in this world. Same goes for the spirit here. The church in all of its sin. I mean, you guys saw, we walked through parts of 1 Corinthians last week. The sins of this church were hugely public and bizarre. And they were proud of it. And they were looking at that going, everything's great. Oh, and by the way, our gatherings are filled with people yelling over one another. This is great. Everyone's got gifts. Everyone's got all the gifts. We're so open and tolerant and everything's fine. And Paul comes in and just a big old wet blanket says, not only should you not be smiling about your toleration of such sinful things that destroy both that person and the church, you should be crying not only is it not a good thing that everyone's talking over themselves because everyone has gifts in the church, you should be quiet. He, he stymies down the whole thing and says, all of this is being done under the auspice of love, but you don't even know what love is. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Next page. It doesn't matter what gift you have. It doesn't matter if you are able to speak the languages of heaven. That's how he starts. That's my paraphrase of verse 1. If I speak in the languages of men, that's actually the right way to translate that, and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, just making noise. That is what we reduce the spiritual gifts too, if we make them about us. Because this is what was happening in Corinth. They were all talking over one another because they each had something to say. They had a gift of knowledge or a gift of wisdom or a gift of prophecy or a gift of speaking in other languages. And he says, I'm not even arguing about what it is you're saying or which spiritual gifts you have. I'm telling you, even if you do have all of those and you use them in this manner, you have defeated the whole purpose. He says, verse 2, even if I have, look at his hyperbole here, even if I have the prophetic powers, understanding all mysteries, understanding all knowledge, even if I have all faith, look, he's maxing out every single gift that he just gave us in chapter 12. Knowledge, mysteries, faith, prophecy, tongues. Even if I have tongues that reach to the highest of heavens. I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith, so as to remove mountains. I can pick up a mountain just by believing and set it over there. uses the same hyperbolic language that Jesus uses. Exact same language. But I have not love. 
not what I am doing is nothing, he uses hyperbole the other way. I am nothing. So, well, at least generosity should mean something, right? Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver even my body up to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, here at the base of nothing, and I try in desperation to earn something back, I still can't gain anything. I'm still down here at zero. Right. Everything about all of this, even if I had every single gift in the world, if I do not wield it properly, in loving deference towards those I am meant to serve, I am nothing. And no amount of generosity or martyrdom will change that. That is brutal language. It's meant to be brutal. And it's meant to remove from the mouths those who are arguing to the contrary in the church in Corinth. Verse 4. Love is patient. It is kind. It does not envy looking at somebody else with wanting what they have. It does not boast, looking at yourself and saying, everyone shall have what I have. It is not arrogant and it is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices only with the truth. It bears all things, no matter how much suffering that involves personally. It believes all things, no matter how bleak it looks. Love places itself on deference and service to another person, even if it looks like it's not worth it. It hopes all things. and it will endure all things. Our culture's definition of love is just as pathetic as Corinth's. This has nothing to do with the self. This has everything to do with the common good. It has everything to do with salvation. It has everything to do with Christ. It has everything to do with the glory of God, no matter what it costs us personally. Here he expresses. No. No. Not in, a, not in a fallen nature. I do not believe so. I don't believe it's actually possible. And, and th this is, and I, would, I would argue that using 1 John 4 to back me up on that, saying that the source of all of it is God, saying God is itself love. And the very reason any of us can is because he first loved us. So I would, I would stipulate this type of love is not possible outside of salvation. Which is, I think, why we settle for such lower loves in the church, just as Corinth was doing. Settling for, well, we have a common goal, so maybe we just kind of head towards that. Kind of what you were asking. If we have a common goal, who determines that? I, I, here, it best not be the leadership. Not in the ultimate. They, they should be on par with God's common goal, which is the salvation of the world, no matter what it costs us, right? And so, at the, at the end of all of this, is this love possible 
outside of Christians. No, I don't believe so. I think Christians have this love specifically for one another, but then generally for the world as well. But there is a special love between Christians that is not only ought to be there, but must be there in order for them to function in any way consistent, uh, lest, lest it destroy us. Look at the eternal nature of it. He connects it with the endurance of love. Verse 8. Do you ever catch this when you're reading this or when someone's reading this at a wedding or something like that? I always hope that that wedding is between Christians. Otherwise, this chapter doesn't make any sense. Love never ends. But look what he does. He takes every single one of those gifts and stuffs them into a representative list. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. All these things that the church in Corinth was priding itself on. We have the prophetic utterances. So many of us have this gift. He says, yeah, that's going to die. But love doesn't die. As for speaking in languages, tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. Now, I'm not going to argue about when this happened or if it's happened. I'm not, I'm not even going to step foot in that argument. I don't care. We miss the whole point he's making if we get into those weeds, and I don't want to do that. For, he says, verse 9, our knowledge is only partial. Even if you have the word of knowledge, it's still partial. You don't have the mind of God. Even when it comes to prophecy, because here is the time and period in in church history where there were still prophets in the church. We see them in the book of Acts. And I mean like, Prophets in the classic parlance of prophets, not just someone giving the word of God, which is the main definition of prophet, but those who foretold the future. Happens in the book of Acts. It's unusual. But what does he say about that? Even if you have the gift of prophecy, isn't that only part of the future you know? Just one thing. There's a famine coming in a few years. He didn't tell you about all the famines in history. He didn't tell you about all the good things in history. He just told you one piece. It's just a piece, just a part. We only see in part. We only have pieces. But love gives all of it. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. No, I'm not going to get into whether that refers to the whole of Scripture in the canon closing. I'm not going to set foot in that argument because that's a bad argument, even if I agree with some of the outcomes. I don't like bad arguments that use scripture as a servant to our arguments. That's, that's, the, that's the opposite direction this should go. We should come to scripture as servants. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. Why is he putting this in here? When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What is he saying to the church? Grow up. Grow up. Grow up. Why? Because you're all fighting like petulant three-year-olds. And the descriptions that come out of Corinth are really like that. There's a lot of craziness and a lot of just, I want my way. I want it. I want it. I want it. What? This is, not, this is not the way of the church. That was when we were children. 
There I spoke like a child, I even thought like a child, and all my knowledge was like a child, but I thought I knew everything. Isn't, isn't that the part of coming of age? You, you, you don't know anything, you think your parents know everything, then you think you know everything, and then you realize nobody knows everything. Those are, those are those, I, what, the, the five stages of depression as you grow up. And you realize, oh, everyone sees in part. And Paul is saying to them, look, that same pattern that happened when you were growing up should be present in the church. Move on from the childish stuff, talking over one another, and I, I want what I want. I don't want carrots. I only want chicken nuggets. <laughs> and he's saying, look, put it all away. It's time to grow up. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Why? Because now we see through a mirror dimly. We are still in the child phase of eternity. We see through a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. How many of them are walking around Corinth saying, I see God clearly face to face. I hear him clearly in my dreams at night. No, you don't. We all see partly. We all see partly. Because eternity is not yet. And so when comes, someone comes up to me, at, and I'll bring this full circle where I started, when someone comes up to me and says, God told me to tell you to come to my church in a dream three nights ago. The amount of clarity with which they are speaking and assuming and it disagreeing with scripture in multiple instances tells me I'm not to listen to that person. Not because they're wrong, but because I cannot see that they're right. I only see in part, and they only see in part, and they're claiming clarity that no Christian has. And what is far more likely is this person loves to control other people. And I'm not good with that. Nor should any of us. For now we see in the mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. Notice that he doesn't say we see through a window dimly. What does he say? We see in a mirror dimly. But then we're going to see him face to face. Theories. What in the world? How many times have you heard this read and you didn't pick up on that? You don't look through a mirror. You're looking into a mirror, and what do you see in a mirror? You only see yourself. What do you look on when you see a human? What were we created to be? Genesis chapter 1. The image and likeness of God. Not the exact imprint of his nature. That's Christ. The image of God. We see it, but it's dim, isn't it? When you look at it, humanity, are you largely reminded of God? In some ways. In other ways, absolutely not. That's the dimly part, even for yourself. When I look at what God is doing in my life, can I see sparks of divine intention and salvation? Yep. What else do I see? Sin. When I look at a mirror, also known as scripture in scripture, what do I see? I see God as perfect and me as a dim, dim reflection of that. 
very dim. What does he say? All of this is in part. Everything, even how we look at the face of God, but then face to face. That's the outcome of this. Now we know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have already been fully known. Man, if that doesn't just erupt you with humility, what does he say? I know in part. Even here, writing scripture, actively, this very day as he's writing scripture, I only know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as what? I am currently and have been fully known. In other words, God does not share our partial view. We all share this partial view. He already knows it all, fully. In other words, when he speaks... And he speaks with clarity in his word. And we go, well, that doesn't really comport with the reality that I see. What ought we to do? Humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and admit, you know what? Maybe I only know in part. And I will defer to the wisdom of one who doesn't know in part. That is why we come to scripture as a servant. All of these things are wrapped up. Don't forget, he's talking about spiritual gifts here. He's laying groundwork for them to actually function as a church. So now he says, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. That, by the way, would have been a sufficient ending to this chapter as it is. But he he tags on this part that says, Even faith and hope, which are the main focuses of the gospel, are not greater than love. In other words, it is possible also to have faith and hope be saved, a Christian, functioning, growing, and still not have love for one another. The chapter distinctions here are artificial, by the way. And this is one of the worst ones, because look at the first two words of chapter 14. Pursue love. Chase it down. Pursue love and a desire to serve one another out of purified hearts, and then earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now we'll go into all of that next week, but I wanted to get you through that to be able to say, if these gifts are in any way focus on something other than the salvation of the world, the ongoing edification of the body of Christ, the respect for scripture, their love of one another. If I hold the gift of, say, prophecy, which I do not have that gift, if I hold the gift of prophecy and I just use it so that people look at me and laud my great abilities in speaking prophecy, I've lost everything for why that gift was given to me. It's not about self. Not first, not foremost, and not ending, ever. The Spirit of God is all about giving life in any and every situation and infighting and destroying one another so that we can have the better spiritual gifts and one-up everyone with our piety or with our commitment to Christ rather than, as the scriptures actually say, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. In other words, outdo one another in humility. 
we'll have lost it. Let's come back next week to chapter 14. If I even open chapter 14, we won't end. Um, any questions here right at the end or even questions of clarity? Welcome to do. I am sorry, you are correct. I won't be here next Sunday. You are right. Um, you would think I would have remembered that. I get, what's that? Oh my goodness. <laughs> Wait, I was planning on being here. Do you know something? Um, yes, no, you're correct. We won't be here next week. So two weeks from now. Very good. You would have thought I remembered. I get very tunnel visioned um, in all sorts of areas. Uh, so any other questions or points of clarity? All right. See you guys in two weeks.